today. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. We're, we're going to study the book of Hebrews. And I'm super excited about the study of Hebrews. It, it does kind of go in line with the, the book of James that we just finished. In that the book of James is a book of meat. Now, um, in, in the Word of God, Paul talks about um, teaching people at the level where they are. Right now, we have our Sunday school next door. And one of the things I love about our Sunday school, and you know, if anybody knows where, where I've come from, what I did as a, as, as a staff pastor in a big church before I came here was I was the children's ministry pastor for 15 years. I feel like I served faithfully. Every time the children's ministry today, I say, hey, will you come and do this? I say, no, I did my duty. I paid 15 years faithful. You're on your own. No, I'm just kidding. My, my heart is still with and for kids and kids ministry, and it's just where God had me. And, you know, oftentimes over those 15 years, I would, I would ask God, am I supposed to be here? Am I, if, I, if I run a shelf life, I'm doing children's ministry. And, and God just kept me there, and I stayed in the, in the middle of his will, and, and, and for a good reason. And with the children's ministry, you know, we, it's not babysitting. Babysitting is the X factor in children's ministry. We don't babysit your kids. We, we want to love and, and teach your kids the word of God. We, we want to give them Jesus. And, and so they say that a child's attention span is its age in minutes. So, so we realize that if you've got a 10-year-old and you have a good Sunday school teacher, they can hold a 10-year-old's attention span approximately about 10 minutes. Okay? Um, some less, some more, depending on the, the animation of the Sunday school teacher. But we, we don't boohoo the fact that we only get 10-minute attention span. We say, hey, if, if God's going to give us 10 minutes with a 10-year-old, let's take the 10 minutes and, and let's use that time to teach the Word of God. One of the things they do next door is they, they teach the Bible in the same place that you and I are studying the Bible. So they've been going through the, the book of James these last couple of weeks. They're going to start in Hebrews over there. And in that, with, with the older kids, then you guys can talk about it at home. You've been covering the same thing, and they're teaching the Word of God. Now, we, we try to do it age-appropriate, and we understand that, you know, you can't sit a group of two, three-year-olds down and teach them the book of Revelation for an hour, right? It's just, but, but, but we don't, but it doesn't mean we don't see it as ministry. And so we're, we're wanting to pour Jesus into them at an age-appropriate level and give them the Word of God. And so that's happening um, now as we go through. But one of the things that the Bible talks about as a concept is milk and meat, okay? Everybody say milk. Okay, so I have a, I have a, a soon-to-be three-year-old in my home, and when she was born a couple years ago, um, I, I didn't take my tri-tip steak and cut up chunks of her and give it to her. She just wasn't ready, you know? How many of you guys have sons? There, there's something as a father, maybe just me, but I can remember, like, distinctly, the first time my boys ate steak. I was so proud, dude. I don't know how old they were. They were young, you know, and I cut it up and I gave it to them and they're eating meat and I'm just like, yes, you know, it's something cool. Well, Gabrielle, we made, we made actually some tri-tip the other night and um, she wanted, she asked me for a bite and I don't know what I told her, but I was telling her something that, like, not no, but I, I don't know what I was telling her. She said, Daddy, it's good for me. I said, okay. I said, but you keep it in your mouth for like 45 minutes. That's what I was telling her. I said, chew it up and eat it. So I cut off a little piece and I gave it to her and 20 minutes later, it's still in the side of her mouth, you know, and, and she doesn't eat it. But the, the idea is that when you're born again, when you become a new believer in Jesus, now some of us, I became a, a believer in Jesus at 20 years old. That was my Christian birthday. That was my born again day. That was the day where Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. So in March of 1994, 
I became a born-again believer, and that was my first fruits as a Christian. And, and, and that day, in March of 1994, I wasn't ready for meat yet. It was, it was still needed to be milk and simple things of the gospel. And I needed to understand baptism, and I needed to understand Jesus' death and burial and, and, and um, salvation through faith in Jesus alone. And there was a season where I, was, I, would only, I could only really comprehend and understand as a believer, as a follower of Christ, the milk. And, and then there comes a season where as I began to develop, and it was about two, two and a half years later, that, that, that God had begun to steer my, stir my heart that I was supposed to go to Bible college. And, and again, I was very green when I became a Christian at 20 years old. I didn't have any God in my family, anybody around me that was Christian. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Very pagan, very secular, um, very, very broken and, 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 and um, dysfunctional in the family I grew up in. A mom who was just amazing and, and had eight kids when my dad died. My dad died in 1975. My mom was pregnant with my little sister, their eighth kid. I was, I was a year and a half old, and my mom faithfully raised us kids the best she could. But she didn't know Jesus. She wasn't a Christian. And she was a good person, but she didn't know the Lord. And I grew up in that environment. I grew up very fast in, in southern L.A. And, um, and, and, and when, I, when I became a Christian, I, 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 began to, um, I began to grow in the Lord. And I don't know where or why, but God began to speak to me. And it's not for everybody, but at 20 years old, that, that I was supposed to go to Bible college. And, and that I felt a call to go into full-time ministry. But I didn't know what that meant. I didn't understand any of that. I was very young. As, as, a, as a Christ follower. So I started researching on the internet Christian colleges. I didn't know any better. I'm looking up TCU, Texas kind of Christian university. Christian in name only university. You know, and it's like, but I didn't know what, what it was. Well, by the grace of God, I ended up in this local church um, called Calvary Chapel. And, and the pastor um, was friends with Lydia's dad. And he said, I, I, I want you to go check out this, this little Bible college in a place called Yucca Valley, California. And, and the big Calvary Chapel Bible College is in Murrieta. It's in Murrieta Hot Springs, California. If you know anything about Murrieta Hot Springs, California, it's beautiful. Right there near Temecula, close to San Diego. Well, they had something that Al Capone owned like in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Or 40s or whatever Al Capone was around. What was it, 30s? Well, I don't know. Al Capone owned it. He had, a, he had a bar there and all kinds of stuff. Like 70-acre property, natural hot springs. Well, Calvary Chapel buys this, this whole property they renovate it. There's swimming pools and libraries and dorms, and it's a conference center and Bible college and retreat center. And, I mean, it's like a little paradise there. And so I, I'm registered to go to Calvary Chapel in Murrieta. And then that's when my pastor at the time says, hey, I want you to go check out this, this extension campus of Calvary Chapel Bible College in Yucca Valley, California. And I'm like, Yucca Valley? Where is that? Can anything good come out of Yucca Valley? So I, I'm already set. I'm all set. I've been working the summers in Alaska to save some money. And I was about $5,000 a year to go to the Calvary Chapel Bible College. And I was all registered. All I had left to do was rooming assignments. And I'm going to Murrieta. Now, Murrieta had 500 students, um, on-campus students there at the time. The school in Yucca Valley had 20 students. So, so my pastor takes me there. And, and what a culture shock coming from, from, from L.A. The street that I grew up on um, was Manhattan Beach Boulevard leads to Manhattan Pier. It's, it's, it's two lanes on each side, center divider. I'm half a block from Hawthorne Boulevard. Hawthorne Boulevard is the most traveled, one of the most traveled streets in the world. It's five lanes on both sides and a center divider 
that Jacob Bay Park semi trucks in. It runs through all of, the, of, of, of South LA. And, and so I go to Yucca Valley, and I'm driving through this one horse town for the first time in my life. And I'm like, Lord, there is no way. And then I'm thinking, there's 20 students. And in Marietta, there's 500 students, and probably like 250 of them are girls. I'm definitely going to Marietta. And God began to speak to my heart, and he called me, and he told me I was supposed to go to Yucca Valley. And so I said, reluctantly, um, I packed enough clothes for one week because Marietta started a week later than they did. And I got to Yucca Valley, and I was going to stay there a week and ended up staying there for 15 years serving the Lord there. And, and there comes a time, now all that was just a little personal testimony, but there comes a time where, where that, that what in the beginning was milk becomes meat. And you start to, to, to grow. Now, now, I've heard sermons before, I think good sermons, but I've heard pastors kind of say something like, oh, you know, you, you shouldn't be drinking milk anymore. That's for babies. As a Christian, you want to grow in the Lord and start eating steak and meat and the, the meaty things of the Word of God. And which is true. There, there, there is a call of the word of God. And, you know, Paul says in, in kind of so many words that if, if you're two and drinking a bottle, it's okay. But if you're 22 and drinking a bottle, it ain't cute anymore. You know, you're 22 and you got a binky in your mouth. It's like, stop it. That's, it's embarrassing. And so, yeah, as Christians, we want to mature. But listen, I do want to say this. Peter makes it very clear. Milk is not bad. He said, I fed you with milk. Milk, milk are the important things of the gospel that we all need on a regular basis. The fact that Jesus died and rose again is, is something that we preach in every sermon, in every message, a resurrection of Jesus Christ. So milk is not bad, but there comes a season where we, 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 um, we mature, we grow up. Isn't that what James told us the last couple of weeks, to grow up and mature? So, so here's what I want to tell you about Hebrews. Hebrews is a book of meat, and we just left some books of meat. Now we have, and I'm kind of proud of this, you know, but we have... Um, since we've been here as a church, Calvary Chapel plant, we've been through 22 books in the New Testament. Hebrews will be our 23rd. We, we have four left, and we will have gone through every chapter, every verse of the New Testament on Sunday mornings. And we purposely chose, when I laid out the New Testament, in which order we would do all 27 books, I purposely chose Hebrews for way at the end because it's meat. And because it's, 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 it's not elementary things, so a little bit of setup to that. Now, real quick, as we set up Hebrews, give me, give me a few minutes just to set up Hebrews. Uh, I'll try not to bore you too bad with some of these um, details, but I think you should know them. Who wrote Hebrews? Does anybody know? Paul. Are you sure about that? Where does it say Paul wrote it? Hey, so um, Hebrews, just so you know, Hebrews doesn't define an author. Most, most of the books, you, you know, Isaiah, pretty much pretty sure. A guy named Isaiah wrote it. Um, John, 1st, 2nd, John, Peter, James. Most of the books go by the first name of the author. Some of them are letters that are addressed. And the very first verse says, um, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. But for whatever reason, the Bible doesn't tell us. The Holy Spirit didn't record for us who wrote the book of, of Hebrews. So we don't know. There's lots of ideas and, and, and things out there. Now, my personal opinion is that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. So I will, you know, I used to say the writer of Hebrews, just to be careful. I stopped saying that now. I just say Paul wrote in Hebrews. So if you hear me say that, I just want you to know that's my opinion, that Paul wrote Hebrews. It doesn't necessarily mean that he did. But I think the important thing, right, as we read the Word of God, is not important who wrote it. Because ultimately, the Bible says that it's God that wrote it inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's infallible, which hand he used and which pen he used, that is regardless. 
You know, the, 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 the book of Hebrews, the Koinonia Greek that's used in the book of Hebrews is so eloquent. It's so perfect, and it actually doesn't match the, all, the rest of the writing of Paul. Paul, Paul was, was, was um, his Greek was good, but whoever wrote Hebrews had a really eloquent um, tongue and, and handle on the Greek language that really seems to be above the things that Paul wrote. But if you just read the book of Hebrews in English, it, it's Pauline. Everything about it is Pauline. It has Paul's name written all over it. With the book of Hebrews, Paul writes over half the New Testament and 14 books in the New Testament. If Paul didn't write Hebrews, that means that he wrote 13 books in the New Testament. And I don't think God would allow Paul to write 13 books. He doesn't like that number. I'm just kidding. But it's possible some say Luke wrote it. Some say Apollos. Apollos in the early church in the first century was one of the, the church leaders who was, a, was, was an amazing orator. He had a golden tongue. He could preach like nobody's business. He had a wonderful handle on the Greek, and some say Apollos. I heard a theory. I think the theory I like the best is that Paul wrote Hebrews, but he wrote it in Hebrew, and Luke translated it into Greek because Luke was a doctor and had that kind of handle on Greek, and he would have wrote it on Greek. Now, who was the, who was the book of Hebrews written to? Hebrews. Hey, um, you know the Bible says that in the morning, men, that you're supposed to make the coffee? The Bible says Hebrews. So ladies, I don't even care if it's Father's Day, right? You tell him, get his butt in there and make the coffee. The Hebrews are the Jews. Now, real quickly, um, there, there was one group of people that, and, and because the Bible was authored around this time, there was only one group of human people in human history that had to deal with this. You and I don't kind of connect with this, but you should understand real quick. There, there was a, a dispensation change. We went from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And what changed was in the Old Testament, we related to God based on the law of Moses. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again the third day, he sent the Holy Spirit to infill us. That was new. It didn't happen in the Old Testament. The, the fact that your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit, that, that's only been the last 2,000 years after Jesus. Adam and Eve and the rest before that were not filled with the Holy Spirit like you and I today. Few people were, God said of like Samson, and a few people in the Old Testament, we get that. But, but this is new. Well, well, there was a group of people in Paul's day who were born under the law of Moses. And, and let's say you're 40 years old in, AD, in, in 33, and Jesus dies on a cross in Jerusalem. He raises again the third day. Fifty days later in Pentecost, the, the disciples are gathered in a room, and God sends the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 people get saved, and the church that you and I are a part of today is born. And, 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 and the early church begins, and God takes these 12 men that he spent three years with training and raising, and he begins to send them out to start churches and preach the gospel and, and write the word of God. And, and these men are, 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 are empowered by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, with the message in, of Jesus that, that Jesus spent three years um, teaching pouring into them. And, and as they go out, they bring the gospel, and they say, you no longer have to follow the law of Moses. And you could have been a God person who, who really loved God and wanted to serve God sincerely and did according to the law of Moses. And now all of a sudden you live in your life and they're telling you, oh, you don't have to follow the law of Moses anymore. It would have created a little confusion. You know, I, I have, we have some folks that, um, friends of mine and people who come to church that maybe grew up LDS. And sometimes they'll tell me, oh, sometimes I get the two confused, the things that I learned and grew up and the things that I'm learning now. And sometimes there's a little crossover in my mind getting those things straightened out. And we get that part. 
So part of Hebrews is addressing this group of people that um, the Hebrews that maybe grew up Jewish and Hebrew and um, according to the law of Moses and died in, in this, this dispensation of grace. <clears throat> you know, Paul was um, the greatest mind that God ever, ever, ever made. Bar none, bar none. Paul, Paul the Apostle Paul, was, was the most talented and gifted um, thinker and theologian and, and, and person that God ever used. God gave that guy some supernatural abilities and powers. And, and he, like I said, because he writes and God used him to write so much, he wrote over half the New Testament, that, that Paul, again, is, is, is God's guy. And so as we looked at this, we just, we just see Paul's hand all over it. Now, the theme to the book of Hebrews, and one of the things that um, Paul is having to share with these Jews um, and with the Hebrews is that Jesus is supreme. That, that Jesus, in this first chapter, we're going to see where Jesus is supreme over the angels. As we go on, we see where Jesus is supreme. He's going to talk about Jesus is more supreme than Moses. You guys know, anybody ever have the WWJD bracelet? What would Jesus do? Anybody? You sinners. Nobody? Nobody rocked the WWJD? Come on. Oh, I got a few hands. I did faithfully for years and years and years. I was a, um, I, one, of, one of my, I had a side career. I was a poor pastor for a lot of years, and Lydia's dad would never give me any money. So I, um, just kidding. So I, uh, I, I had a second career, and I was a basketball official, and I, and I officiated high school and college basketball for a lot of years. And so I wasn't allowed to wear any jewelry, but I wouldn't take that bracelet off just for, just for, just to be, I don't know, <laughs> just to prove a point. They'd make me put tape on it, but I wear tape on my wrist to cover my bracelet. And, and I wasn't even really a big fan of the idea of what would Jesus do, because sometimes people say, well, what would Jesus do? And I'd say, well, Jesus would shoot fireballs out of his eyes, and you ain't doing that. So, you know, what do you mean, what would Jesus do? But the, the same idea where we take the, the what would Jesus do to the, to the Old Testament saints, they had the same exact idea about Moses. Moses, to this day, for, for an Orthodox Jew, Moses is their hero. Moses is the guy. They, they wore braces, bracelets. What would Moses do? WWMD. And, and so Jesus is going to talk about here, or Paul's going to talk about here, that, that Jesus is superior to Moses. He's going to talk about Jesus is superior to the priesthood and the, the Levitical and the Aaronic priesthood. We'll deal with that. We'll come to Melchizedek. And then we'll get into um, the, the supremacy of the word of God. So that's, a, that's the intro. But let's look at what it says more. Um, hey, I, I got to make ask you one more point. And then we will get into it. Talk about the authorship of the word of God. Now, again, just to be clear, we, what, what it says is more important than what wrote it, right? And sometimes higher learning or education can be an enemy of the gospel. In a, in, a, in a, you know, some seminaries, and unfortunately, just to be honest, a lot of theological seminaries today in the United States, major theological seminaries have, have, have careened into liberalism. And they're not even teaching in theology schools in America um, the, the inerrancy of the Word of God. It's really, really bad at, a, at an epic, epidemic level. There are still a few out there that are, that are good and, and doing well, but um, seminary oftentimes becomes cemetery for people's faith. And, and so in seminary, for example, there's classes, there's a class on Isaiah, and they spend a, a full semester studying who wrote the book of Isaiah. What are you talking about, Willis? Really? You, you would, who wrote it? Why, why, wouldn't, why don't you spend a semester reading what it says? 
And you grow so much and so much different. And so ultimately it doesn't matter, you know, who wrote it. And that's, that's not important. We don't want to fall into that trap. Verse 1, you guys ready? Somebody say, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the Father by the prophets, he has in these last days not spoken through Joseph Smith, but to us by his son. Oh, shoot, I'm sorry. Did I say that out loud in church? That's bad. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Um, let's read it again. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom he has made the worlds. So, so God has spoken in times past through the prophets. Now, you understand that, that even the, the New Testament writers didn't have the Bible. And again, we take things for granted. We have the Bible. For lots of years through, through history, now we have Jesus who wrote the first five books of the law, and Paul and these guys had an amazing handle on the Old Testament and would have had Old Testament scriptures. But the New Testament was still being compiled. And, and for a season, until the New Testament was completed, God did speak. As Paul says here, God spoke at various times in various ways. And God used all kinds of different things to speak throughout history. God spoke through a monkey. And he still speaks every Sunday right here. God spoke through the prophets in, in life lessons and word lessons. How would you like the call of Hosea? Hosea is a book in your Bible. And Hosea is one of the minor prophets. There's 12 of them. And Hosea was a prophet who God used his life to tell a lesson to Israel. And God said to the prophet, I want you to take a prostitute as your wife. And Hosea was madly in love with this woman. And, and, and she, was, she was cheating on him. And God said, every time she cheats, I want you to take her back. And then God said, Hosea, when she's away having affairs, I want you to restore and buy loads and deliver them to her and her lover she's having an affair with. And Hosea would go and bring goods to, this, to his wife and, her, and her, her, her man, whoever she was with at the time, so they had enough food to eat while they were having an affair with him, on him. And God, God instructed Hosea to do this. And then God said, when, when she's old and nobody else... Her, I want you to take her back to be your wife again. And I want you to love her unconditionally through all of this. You know, she would come home pregnant. And, and, and it's true. In, in there, she, he had a kid. Hosea has a kid. And, and it's her kid. She comes home from one of these affairs and she's pregnant. And, 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 and Hosea named the kid, not my kid, Lohemi. That's not my kid. But he kept taking her back. And God said that, that it's a picture of them and what they me and how I've loved them unconditionally. Ezekiel was called as a prophet to lend them. And then when the year was over, God said, turn and lay on the other side for a year. Jeremiah was a prophet who faithfully spoke God's word. And every time he did, they picked him up and throw him in prison. And he continued to speak God's word because his life was a picture and a word as God spoke through him. Jesus said, if, if the people don't cry out and worship me, God will speak to the very rocks and the rocks will cry out. And so without a doubt, throughout history, God has spoken in various times and in various ways. 
But in these last days, he's chosen to speak to you and me through his son. We have to get that clear. Does that mean that God doesn't? Yes, that's what that means. God does not bring revelation through prophets today that change anything that the word of God says. He brings personal revelation. He brings um, to your life what job you're supposed to take, sell or buy your house, where you're supposed to move, handle life. He brings revelation in, in these things. He doesn't anymore. It's complete. The revelation of God is complete in his word through his son. Turn with me to John chapter 1 um, in this idea. I, I was in Alaska, and I was speaking to a particular person, um, and I was sharing. I was young in my faith. I was been a Christian about a year, and I was working in, in Alaska for the summers. And, and I was brand new to the Lord, man. All I wanted to talk about was Jesus, and anybody that would listen in my plant, in my, in my dorm, I would just, we would debate, and i just talk for months about Jesus. And, and I can't. I remember specifically showing and asking somebody to read these two verses and their reaction was priceless because I didn't even tell them. I just say, hey, read this verse and read this verse. And they're like, Jesus is the word? And I was like, I didn't say it. You said it. But look, look, look at this. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. Everybody say word. Okay, now say word, homie. And the word was with God and the word was God. Okay, you know what the Jehovah Witnesses do? They add one letter into that verse that's blasphemy and changes the entire meaning. You've got to be careful because Satan wants to diminish the place of Jesus. And so in the Jehovah Witness Bible, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Whoa, hold on. What do you mean the Word was a God? No, the Word was God. So if you pick if it's a good Bible or a bad Bible, turn and if it doesn't say the word was God, then you can just chuck in the trash because it's of Satan. It's not of God. This, this is, this, this, that's a perversion of what the word of God says. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us? Are you saying Jesus is the word? Jesus is the word. What do you mean Jesus is the word? That's what the Bible teaches. The word of God is a revelation of Jesus. Jesus is the word. The word comes through Jesus and is in Jesus. Jesus is in the word become flesh and dwelt among us. And by the way, if the word was in the beginning with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, is Jesus God? Very clearly, right? Is God um, beheld his glory and the glory of the only begotten of the Father is full of grace. John concerning the same thing. John, who wrote this late in his life when he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he said the Word became flesh, and, and we touched him, and we handled him, and we beheld him, talking about that they were able to hug Jesus and, and put their hands on him, and that the very Word of God that, that, that was Jesus came. And, and so Paul tells us in Hebrews that, that, that God speaks in these last days through his Word. How does God speak to you and me? God speaks through his Son, Jesus. Jesus is the Word. He speaks through the Word. The Word is of Him. Now, the Word can't be flawed. The Word can't be errant, or it can't have mistakes in it. Listen, if, 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 if the Bible has mistakes and errors, then the God of the Bible has mistakes and errors. Listen, the God that I serve is able to preserve His Word. Okay? 
My pastor told me there's two things I know for sure. Everything I tell you, I don't know, but this I know. There is a God, and you're not him. I said, okay, good and fair enough. But, but let's just pretend for a minute you were God. You're God. You, you can create the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. You can create a human body. You decide one day for fun, you pick up some dust, and you, you blow into it, and Adam appears. And Adam is the most brilliant mind that, that, that you tell him, hey, I'm going to pass all the animals by you, and I want you to name them. And Adam just has this amazing intellect, and he's like, giraffe, Trianosaurus rex. And then the day must have been getting late, and he was tired, and he was like, dog, chat. So, so and, then, and then you get bored, and you say, you put Adam to sleep, and you, you take a rib out of his side, and you fashion it into a beautiful woman. You can do all that. You're God. But you cannot write a book and keep it the way you want it. What kind of God are you? I ain't serving you. You can't preserve your own word. You can't just write some words on a page. I, I've made this argument and somebody said, oh, I know, but, but men wrote it down. And, and, and I thought, I don't care. If God is God, he was there and he could have made the right men write down what he wanted to say. Or he's not a God that's worth serving. And, and, and besides, when he says in the word that he's put his name above his word, he says in the word that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words by no means will pass away. When he says the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide even the bone and the marrow, that's pretty sharp. The word of God is sharp. And the word of God, when it says that it's, it's, it's good for doctrine and reproof and instruction and righteousness. Now, I want to tell you, Satan has to attack the word of God, you guys. Are there, you know, certain translations that are better than others and different things? Yes. I use a new King James. I have people say, oh, well, the King James only version. You should only use the King James. There's, there's 4,000 different changes from the King James, but they can't show me one. And, and, and here's the deal. If, if one says automobile and the other one says car, does it change the meaning? No. And, and, and if you don't like the, the translation that it is, there's 7,000 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament you just get the Greek manuscripts and translate the Greek words into English the way you like. It's all there. The original manuscripts, we have them. In, in history and antiquity, the closest amount of manuscripts that we have for any ancient writer, 300. And that's a lot. And then it goes down to like 25 is a really high number of, of original manuscripts. The New Testament, 5,000 500 just in the, in the Greek. When you count the Latin and the others, there's over 20,000 original manuscripts of the, of the New Testament. But just go get them. They're, they're available. But, and and, and two, two, so you know, just sidetrack here. There's a difference between a translation of the Bible and a paraphrase of the Bible. Okay? So the Living Bible, for example, NLT. The NLT, the Message Bible. Um, those are not word-for-word translations. What they did was they took the original Greek manuscripts and they tried to convey the idea for easier learning. So I love the NLT. People have such a hard time. Oh, I love the NLT. I just don't use it for doctrine. I don't teach out of it, but for reading, for understanding, for personal growth, I think it's great. The Message Bible, same thing. I think it's great. If you, it's used the right way, and I understand that it's not a translation. The writer didn't intend to take the Greek word and translate it word for word into English. Um, the ESV 
um, Justin Alfred, who is the Greek and Hebrew scholar for Calvary Chapel, when you, got, when you open your, your uh, Blue Letter Bible, and if you're, if you're studying your interlinear or Greek, and you click on the little icon, it'll, it'll say the Greek word for you. That voice that's on there, that's Justin Alfred. He's, one of the, he's at the Calvary Chapel Bible College. He says that, that the ESV, English Standard Version, is actually the best Greek to English translation that we have. And a lot of, a lot of Calvary Chapel um, in um, Salt Lake City, Pastor Terry just recently switched his church over to ESV. So just, just to say there's, I, I'm not going anywhere. I like my new King James. Um, there, there are um, other translations, and the issue is not translations. That's not a problem. They're, 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 that it's still the word of God. Amen? Yeah. If I put it here, it gets too loud. Better? It's time for a new mic, I think. Been going back and forth. Okay. Um, well, what was the first lie that Satan ever told? Shows up in the garden, and Eve is there, and what does he say to her? He had he attacks the word of God. Has God really said? So the very attack, first attack of Satan is to attack the word of God. Two areas where Satan attacks on a regular basis that, that um, number one is the word of God always. He has, to, he has to get us to believe that, that we can't trust the word of God. Because if we can't trust the word of God, then, then you know, it can go anywhere from there. You know, for those that say the word of God is good in as much as it's been translated correctly, I want to know who gets to decide which parts are translated correctly and which part are not. I wish I had that job. I don't like that part. You know, that, that's not a part of Christian living. Oh, I really like this part. I'll just follow that part. It, it's a slippery slope and it's dangerous. Either it's all, you get it all or you get none. And if there's an error in it, there's an error with the author. And then we got a big problem because we have God who, who can't preserve his own word. And then it goes on and it says, um, in verse 3, it says, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the, of the man on high, having become so much better than the angels, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Hey, turn to Colossians with me real quick. Go back. Um, go left for a little bit. If you get to Philippians, you went too far. Colossians chapter 1. Now, in Hebrews here, as you're turning there, just going to remind you, verse 3 says, Who being in, the, in his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Now, we're talking about Jesus specifically. And it says he uphold all things by the word of his power. And some of you have heard me teach this before, but I'm I just going to cover it today so you know it. Look at, ver, at chapter 1 um, in verse 15 of Colossians. You there with me? He is, is that a capital H? Okay, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. They, they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, you know what? We just show us God. We just show us the Father. Come on. And Jesus said, have I not been with you long enough that you don't know this by now? He said, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. And so, um, so Jesus is the image of the Father that, that's been revealed to you and I is a revelation of God. And so here it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him, everybody say, by Him, by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him and by him and in him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. Now, just really quick to unpack that for you. um, Jesus is the creator of the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, when it says in the beginning, God, Jesus is there. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. The, the, in, in Hebrew, the, the main mantra of, of the Jew today is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. We call it the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. The word one in, in, in the Hebrew is a word called echad. Echad, you've got to kind of spit when you say it. Echad is a different usage of the number one. There's another word in the Bible, one, that means singular. But whenever you see the word echad, it means a compound fracture, a compound union. So hero Israel, the, the Lord is echad. And then in the, it also, where he's talking about a husband and a wife, and the two will become one flesh. That word is when the two will become echad, flesh, it's a compound union. And so it's a different word. It doesn't mean one completely. And so God is one. We know that he's three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the, the, that we see all three present in creation. And then in the New Testament, it just clarifies for us that Jesus is and was and is the creator of all things. He could never be a created being or anything less than God if he created all things. And here it says that he created all things for him, in him, through him. And then it says he holds all things together. Now, um, in every one of our um, bodies, we are made up um, of and, and um, there's, there's moving particles inside the atom, right? And, and they're moving in, in rapidly. And, and the force that holds an atom together is, is astronomical. Just a teaspoon, um, 30,000 pounds of pressure just to hold an atom together. Your body is up of millions and millions of, of atoms. And inside the core of every atom are positive and negative charges that are, that are going, going crazy. Now, what happens is if you, if you take two um, magnets, you guys ever take a magnet and you try to put it together the wrong way and it repels? You flip it around, then it sticks. Well, in, inside your cells are these magnets these, that, are, that are particles that are similarly charged, and so they're repelling each other, and they won't go together at a super, super strong force. And, and what, happens when, what happened when man figured out how to split that atom? What happened when, when we figured out how to take the power that was already within the atom and then release it? Hiroshima? Nagasaki, an atom bomb, basically taking the power that was already in it and releasing it. And, and there's enough power in a cup of water to destroy the entire universe. There, there, there is in your body. Now, science says that they don't understand what holds them together. And, and so they have a term in the science community, and they say it's gluons. It's some atomic glue, some kind of invisible glue that holds all these atoms together in our bodies that doesn't cause them to split. Well, the Bible says that Jesus holds them all together. And one day, Peter tells us, Jesus is going to do what? He's going to let go, and it's that the heavens and the earth are going to burn up with a fervent heat. There's going to be a real atom bomb, a real big bang one day, but it's yet in the future, not in the past. And one day when Jesus lets go, 
So everything in life, Jesus holds together until a certain appointed time. You know the nails that they put through Jesus' hands and through his feet? He held them together while they were going to his hands and into his feet. I don't know about you, but I probably would have let go. And, and, and so in Peter, um, in Peter, when he's talking about this, he says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. You guys ever hear that term? It's all burned. You know, I think it's a good idea maybe for some of us to go by the junkyard. And when you go by the junkyard and you see all those cars, just know that one day that was a brand new showroom floor. That was somebody's dream. But eventually it all ends up in the junkyard. And, you know, the things in life, one day it's all going to burn. The, in the center, you guys can go in the center. I'll just tell you this, and I won't have time to do it really justice. And um, in the center of every one of those cells that I described is is a particular um, I don't even know what it's called. It's called laminin, and laminin is that atomic glue that's in your in in the center of every one of your souls. And what's so powerful and so cool about laminin, now, first of all, you know your body, and I don't know what the number is. It's millions or billions or trillions of atoms and cells that make up your body. And in the center of every one of them is, is a molecule called laminin that, that God uses to, to hold everything together. And that laminin, as you look at it in a microscope, it's in the shape of a perfect cross. You can, you can Google it when you get home, laminin. And so inside your very body and inside your very core, God created every one of you with, with the cross of Jesus built into your very core, in, into your very life. And then um, as we go on in Hebrews, so Jesus holds all things together there. Now, now as we get into um, verse 4, it says, Having become so much better than the angels, he has inherited, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So again, Paul is making a case to Hebrews who are receiving Jesus as their Messiah. He's probably trying to convince some that haven't, but he needs to make a case of who Jesus is. So he's going to start here, and he's going to go through the Old Testament, and he's going to read, and you can read ahead. I won't be able to cover it all verse by verse today. We just ran out of time, but I want you to at least read. It's ten more verses, and where Paul is making the case how much better than the angels Jesus is. That, it, that one of the verses in verse... Um, that Jesus, the Father calls Jesus um, God, and that he never in the Psalms, that, that, that Jesus was God. Over and over again, the Bible, and Paul, and Peter, and Jesus, and, and then the Father calls Jesus God, that he's so much better than the angels. Now, now, one of the, again, other main tactics of Satan is to diminish the position of Jesus. If I, if I can just take Jesus and who he is, and, and move him just down one notch, then, then Satan wins. And he's very effective at it. And I don't care what the ism or schism or, or cult or religion that's out there that's apart from salvation through faith in Jesus alone it is, is the same. The position of Jesus has been changed. And it's consistent all the way through. You know that Islam believes in Jesus? Muslims believe in Jesus? They're actually prideful and they'll tell you that you know, they're more, they're more Christian than you because they believe in Jesus as the prophet and they'll go on and tell you all about Jesus and Jesus is mentioned in the Quran seven times. But they, when, when you give down to it, you find out it's not the same Jesus we believe. 
is God. They don't believe that he's Messiah. They do believe he's coming back, but it's Jesus. And it's a test to get you and I. You know what you, how you feel about uh, Donald Trump? believe about Jesus has everything right to Jesus Christ and and Satan knows that and what's consistent all the way across the board just a little diminish of, of who Jesus is what the Jehovah Witness Michael the Archangel and say he's um, the brother of Lucifer that he's contemporary with Lucifer and even, you know, just to diminish him a little Paul doesn't make a very compelling case that he is. You know, one of the things I get asked sometimes is, if you say Jesus is God, then why does the Bible I'm like, you obviously have never read the Bible. Super clear that Jesus is God. We're going to end on a few of those and then we'll call it a day, okay? But let me just tell you a couple. Over and over and over again, you really got to have your head in the sand. You really just don't read or understand what the Bible says um, or just deny what it says because it is that clear. When Thomas, you guys remember doubting Thomas? He makes one of the most profound statements in all the Bible and, and Thomas has some high highs. Yeah, we, we, we unfortunately, we call him doubting Thomas, but that dude was pretty cool actually in history. He was the one that Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And Thomas was like, come on, boys, let's go. We're going to Jerusalem, and, and we're going to die with Jesus. And he, was, he meant it. He was ready to go, and he didn't understand at the time what that meant, but he's like, let's go and die with Jesus. But then he, he missed the church service. Now, I tell you, that's a bad church service to miss because Jesus showed up. And Jesus appeared after his resurrection, and Thomas just wasn't there. So Thomas comes in later, and they're like, dude, Jesus was here. And he's like, no, he wasn't. He's like, man, I won't believe until I can put my hand in the holes in his wrist and his side. Next thing you know, Jesus is in front of Thomas. And Thomas is like, no. And Jesus puts out his hands and he says, Thomas, put your, put your hands in my, in my holes. And he shows him his side. And Thomas bows down and Thomas says, my Lord and my God. One of our statements that, that, that he claims Jesus to be God. You know, Paul said in, in Titus 2.13... John 20, 28, if you're taking notes, Titus 2.13, Paul says that we should look for the appearing of our glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Using God and Jesus Christ, that Paul calls him our glorious Savior and God. And we should look for the appearing. Jesus said of himself in John, uh, in John's gospel in chapter 8, Abraham was me. I am. Now, now the next verse says that the Pharisees picked up stones to kill him. That was it. Why did they pick up stones to kill him? Because blasphemy, he just called himself God. And they understood that very clearly. Because he, he said, before Abraham was, ego ami, I am, claiming to be the God that showed up to Abraham, Moses, in the burning bush. Amen? All right, I'm preaching to the choir, right? Um, you know, Jesus answers prayers. He raises the dead. He forgives sins, and only God can forgive sins. The rich young ruler came to Jesus, and he said, he said, good sir. And Jesus stopped him, 
And he said, why do you call me good? Nobody's good except for God. So Jesus was claiming either to be rotten or to be God. And just very clear over and over and over again. You know, the Bible says that, you know, you know I tell people this sometimes too, and I try, I try to be uh, um, sensitive and, and, and compassionate towards them. But I realize oftentimes that, that our hang-ups with... of who Jesus is, it's an issue. It's, it's, it's a willing Amen? All right, let's stand together. Hey, read the rest of Hebrews for me, please. Chapter 1. It'll take you 30 seconds. And in that, he's going to talk about um, just the supremacy of Christ over the angels. Let's have the worship team come on up. Um, we're going to be up front to pray for you guys. If anybody would like individual prayer, we would uh, we'd love to pray for you guys and encourage you guys this morning. Um, we get one song, you guys. I encourage you just to take this moment and just worship the Lord. God spoke to your heart about something. Um, pray and, and sing and, and allow God to continue.